we're faster than, we're cheaper than, we're better than. And that's not compelling. That doesn't turn into value. That isn't going to give the customer true value. It's better to think how you can approach a problem differently. This is the podcast where we go around the globe to interview marketing leaders from the world's biggest brands, fastest growing companies, and most disruptive startups. Great ideas packaged a certain way want to spread. They want to be told to someone else. This is simple, surprising, and significant. Unlocking viral creativity is to make it rapidly scalable. This is Top CMO with me, Ben Kaplan. Today I'm speaking to Janetha Murphy, the CMO at Five9 a leading provider of cloud contact center software and the company that made headlines for almost being acquired by Zoom in a $14.7 billion deal. Prior to Five9, Janetha held various global roles across product, marketing, enablement, and communications at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. As CMO at MicroFocus, she helped transform the underlying marketing tech stack, helping deliver scale and strong ROI for the company, its customers, and partners. We have CMOs that have different superpowers, right? Some CMOs are, they're great at branding. It's all about positioning the brand. Mm -hmm. Some CMOs are incredibly analytical. They really like delving into the numbers. Some CMOs are great team leaders, right? They're like a leader of people. They get people aligned and get them going. Some CMOs have, a, they're just a visionary with marketing, right? They're, they're just great at that. Some are, are growth focused. They're just growth marketers. They're big experimenters. They got a marketing laboratory. How would you describe yourself? What is your superpower? Yeah, I think, uh, I would say my superpower is that I'm not a career marketer. Um, I came from a different background. I came from the product side of the house. I came from sales enablement. I came from go-to-market strategy. And that means, you know, one of the most important relationships a marketer can have is with their sales team. And that's, I think, uh, one of my greatest strengths is that ability to engage with the sales team and make sure that marketing is an equal player uh, in that team game that sales and marketing play together to win over the customer and to keep the customer and to delight the customer. Well, and a common dynamic is that usually between sales and marketing, like sales is complaining, marketing is giving us, you know, crap leads. And then, and then marketing is complaining, sales can't close a lead to save their life. We gave them all of these things. And then unfortunately, customer success comes in and says, both of you guys aren't doing the right thing because I'm not being set up. They're being sold something else or something else. And we have to actually deliver this. And that's right. So there tends to be a blame game. It's not uncommon. It doesn't have to be that way. But how do you, if you have that better understanding between how these work, you've been on the other side of the aisle, how do you do that to make this all work together? Because it's very easy to blame another group. Yeah, I, I, it's so funny. Um, because, because yeah, that don't that dynamic definitely exists, um, and I think it comes down to transparency. That's what I've always looked at it as is complete and open transparency. I don't hide my metrics from my sales leaders and my sales counterparts. I'm, you know, me and my team are incredibly honest about what's working and what's not. Um, we share our wins, but we also share where we've maybe, you know, put some investment in that isn't getting the ROI that everybody expects. So I think it's about transparency, you know, getting alignment on the metrics, getting alignment on the goals. It's also about owning your craft. I think that's a really important part as well, because 
I think you do have to think of it as a team sport. Sales have their job to do. I have no desire to be in sales, right? I uh, I think sales is an incredibly, incredibly hard job. Um, you know, and getting someone to part with significant some significant amounts of money. I know as a CMO, as a purchaser, how difficult I can be. So uh, I don't envy our sales teams having to do that on a daily basis. Um, but marketing also has their part to play. And so I think it's about standing up for yourself as well and sort of saying, listen, this is what you're bringing to the table sales. And that's great. And I respect that. And I, I trust your judgment. But this is what we're bringing to the table as marketing as well and asking for and earning that respect and trust. Uh, because too often I see marketing teams who just bow down to sales and kowtow to sales. And that's not going to help anyone because that means that you end up demotivating your marketing team and you don't get the best diversity of thought in coming up with an end outcome to really please that customer. Mm, it makes sense. Well, so, so now you're spending a lot of the time, uh, you mentioned to me, thinking about account-based marketing. And so mm -hmm. you understand, so I mean, two types of marketing, you could say, okay, we're going to have a really big top of the funnel, like lots of people are going to go after, and we're going to filter it down. Or we could say, we're going to like laser focus on these specific accounts, which are like the, the ones we really want. Maybe they're, you know, it's a, it's a large account. It's a, it's a whale. It's worth a lot of revenue. Mm -hmm. It could be that it's very strategically important. You're moving into a new sector, maybe a new geographic market, something else. So why are you prioritizing account-based marketing in terms of your overall approach to kind of laser focus? Um, why is that an important part of your toolkit? Yeah, so I think for, for me, it really depends on where you are as a company and where you are in terms of both your marketing and your selling maturity. So if you're, um, you know, if you're in the volume game and it's just about getting as many hits at that as you possibly can, then, you know, is account-based marketing applicable? Maybe, but is it going to be the most useful tool to use? Maybe not. However, if you start to get into a place where, you know, you really need to prioritize the leads that you're working on, you've done all the usual things like scoring and nurturing and all of those different pieces, then account-based marketing is a really useful tool to be able to prioritize and focus your efforts and also make sure that you're truly going after the customers who meet your ideal customer profile. I think that's a... Um, that's something that is actually lacking. You know, creating an IDP, an ideal customer profile, is such a fundamental of marketing. But yet, I think with the rise in agile marketing and performance and growth marketing, sometimes people forget that. And they don't look at things like segmentation. Who is the right type of person and persona to be able to target our message at? and to be able to target our solution at. So I think it comes down to your company maturity and what are your overall objectives? I think you always have to have a balance between awareness, preference, and perception. Um, but account-based marketing, given where we are as Five9, helps us to be a little bit more targeted with who we're going after. We know where our product works well, and maybe for those markets where it's not as applicable. So we've learned that through you know, many years of selling uh, and winning. And so we can now apply that into a uh, a little bit more of a targeted approach. That sure makes sense. I mean, we have so uh, in our we have a global marketing agency, Top Worldwide. We sometimes actually experience clients who um, it, it, a problem arises from incredible success, which is let's say mm -hmm. they're a prolific 
team and, and you know search engine optimization or bring in lots of people that come all over, right? Because people are searching out for you. Then the problem is you get all of these inbound leads. You get all of these things, but then it's easy to lose your focus because you're like, they're over here, they're over here. There's a, ooh, it's, you know, like the movie um, up, like squirrel, squirrel, yeah. squirrel, right? You're, you're seeing all of those come in and, and it's easy to lose your focus. And so what you're saying is, and I like that, it's actually an interesting way of, of taking the value of account-based marketing. Because a lot of times people just do account-based marketing because they're like, yeah, these are the companies that move the needle, right? Like yeah. that's clear. But you're actually talking about of like defining your ideal customer and it forces you to do that. You can't really do account-based marketing if you exactly. don't define it. So it, it, it puts a sort of discipline and focus, which is a benefit of it. It's not always about size and scale, right? Sometimes, of course, yeah, in account-based marketing, you go after, we want to get X percentage of the Fortune 100. Great, okay? But you might also say as well, like for Five9, we have a very healthy mid-market uh, business as well that we go after. We have our enterprise customers and our Fortune 100 customers, and we, we've, we've got those uh, big customers that we go after, and of course, we target them. But we've also got companies who are smaller, uh, who maybe have no desire to get up into that Fortune 100, and we have a solution that fits them as well. And the other thing as well that I think you've got to think about talking about marketing and sales is context switching. Context switching is incredibly hard. So think about if you've got a limited set of you know, lead development reps or business development reps who are having to qualify all of these leads that are coming in, their ability to context switch between the needs of an enterprise customer and maybe the needs of a commercial or a smaller customer, that's pretty hard to do. And if you've only got one pool of LDRs or lead development reps, you know, asking them to constantly context switch becomes tiresome on them. And also as well, you know, how can you make sure that they're giving the right pitch to the right level of customer with this vast volume of leads coming in as well? So I think that's the other thing is just thinking about your team burnout and your team's ability to consume the volume of opportunity that you bring in as a marketing team. I see. So to, to, to kind of paraphrase what you're saying, you're saying that it's, it takes a lot of mind share for a person or a team to be like, I'm thinking one way, I'm thinking that, you know, two plus two equals four, then suddenly I got to do nine divided by three equals three. It's, a, it's just a different way of thinking and to just jump between those things become difficult, but a benefit of account-based marketing based on an ideal customer profile is you kind of hone in on that. And then that allows you to optimize a little bit. Exactly. Better, right? If you had a series of conversations, you're like, ah, I didn't quite close that one, but you know, they were just hung up on not seeing examples of use cases that really value. You can then apply it to the next one. But if you've got a context switch, then suddenly you got new use cases, new case studies, all this other stuff makes it a lot harder. Yeah, and then, and then you end up creating marketing and enablement that's too generic. And then you end up creating messaging that's too generic and it's not specific to either what your company does or what your buyers need. And I then that so, becomes problematic too. So the other, the other problem that you would have then is, is you're saying that essentially then if you got to meet all these different profiles, then you're just going to like dumb this down to a level that sort of go, you know, okay, it fits all of this, but then you potentially could lose out to competitors who are just like drilling in and being more specific because they're building it for that case. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really tough. Right. And I, I always, I always say it's something that someone once said to me, it's better to be different than to be better. 
Um, and I think, you know, when you try and dumb down a message so that it can reach an appeal to all audiences, you end up either creating a very generic watered down message or you start to get into differentiation through, well, we're faster than, we're cheaper than, we're better than. And that's not compelling. That doesn't turn into value. That isn't going to give the customer true value. It's better to think how you can approach a problem differently. Sure. And it's also difficult because in crowded spaces or competitive spaces, some of those messages, everyone's saying. You're exactly. Saying, like number of places that say we're data driven, right? We really, we really look at the data, right? Everyone says that. So you've got to be able to differentiate yourself on how you use data and analytics in a really original, differentiated way because everyone's going to say. Yeah, who, who's who's going to say, oh, no, we don't help you optimize your business. We don't help you save costs. Like, yes, no yes. one's ever going to put that out there as yes. a marketing message. Yes, we are incredibly slow. We are just slow. Yes. So yeah, we are hard to do business with. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. An ideal customer profile defines the perfect customer for your solution. The company or person that has the precise qualities you're looking for. But what if your target profile is multidimensional? And where else do you look after you've already nurtured your ideal customer? So who is your ideal customer? And who is your ideal customer and how did you determine that? So if someone else yeah. looks at me, how did you figure out what that would be? Yeah, so I think, you know, for Five9, like I said, we've got a few different segments. Uh, we've got our commercial segment. That's where the ideal customer is um, a little bit smaller. They're maybe just, um, you know, maybe they're a, a smaller business. They've got uh, individual contact centers, maybe just one contact center. So that's one grouping. Then we've got a mid-market um, sort of set of customers. Those are customers who are looking to grow. They're looking to um, do more with technology. They're looking to optimize and scale their business. And then we've got the enterprise customers who are the Fortune 500. And in those cases, those customers tend to be looking a little bit more at things like digital transformations? How do they digitize the full end-to-end -end customer experience? How do they connect their customer experience with their employee experience and do more of a company-wide digital transformation? Um, so it really varies. At the top end, like I said, strategic and enterprise, that tends to be digital transformation projects. As you go further um, down into the big market and commercial, it often does become about optimization. It becomes about value for money. It becomes about finding ways to reach their audience in a more scalable fashion. Okay, so when you take that and you extend that tactically, um, whether that's account-based marketing or some other, mm -hmm. how do you set up your campaigns? I know you're a performance marketer. You care about measurement and you care about scalability. So how does that get in? I mean, do you have... Uh, you know, three different drip campaigns running as your base campaign and then it branches out from there from each of these segments. Is there something else? How do you sort of like start like bring this to a practical level of just like how you're reaching people and having these touch points? Yeah, so the first thing is that we actually look at what our sort of messaging hierarchy is and what are the main problems that we're solving and then tweaking 
each of those nurture campaigns based on the audience and based on the problem we're seeing. So for example, we look at, there's a segment of customers where we focus more on business agility. Those are the customers who haven't moved to the cloud yet and who maybe have an on-premise contact center and then looking to move to the cloud. So we have one set of nurtures uh, that goes out and says, okay, if they're customers that are going from on-premise to the cloud, this is sort of phase one that we take them. And we put all of this in a sort of maturity model. The second piece is to look at, okay, let's assume that they've moved to the cloud. Now, one of the challenges that they're dealing with is how to scale uh, their team and how to leverage the power of AI and automation to scale their teams. Great. That's another set of ongoing, always on nurtures that we have. And then the third and the fourth area looks at analytics. So for example, um, and analytics crosses across all of them, right? Are they more analytics driven, more insights driven? Do they want to do customer journey mapping? Do they want to look at how do they integrate their contact center into their CRM uh, as an example? Uh, and then the fourth area is how do, are they looking more at things like empowering their agents and their supervisors? So are they thinking about workforce engagement and gamification and performance management of their employees? So we have baseline nurtures across each of those four pillars and then depending on where a customer comes into the journey we can sort of tell based on the content that they're downloading or interacting with uh, which ones of those nurture journeys do we want to then send them through i see well it makes sense and then how do you then if those are kind of the base sort of nurture campaigns um how what happens then so so someone responds to that where does it go how does it sort of branch out from there i mean i think one of the you know, and, and if you're doing this in a way that's sort of an arc marketing automation sort of way, one of the challenges yeah. is that people either want to be incredibly complex, right? There's like all these branches, all these things, and it gets overwhelming. Or else people have like, you actually see actually quite large companies that have like one track, right? That was so yeah. complex that it was just like, we've just slimmed this down to like one sort of thing because we couldn't do it. So how does it branch out from there? You got four of these four tracks. How complex does it get? Yeah, so I mean, it definitely that I would say we have taken a simpler approach versus a more complex approach. The other nuance that we have to think about is, are we speaking with prospects or are we speaking with existing customers? Because those are two parallel audiences that we sort of reach out to and that we work with. So, for example, um, both of those audiences have newsletters, but the content of the newsletters, I would probably say there's about 50% of overlap and then 50% differentiation in what might be the theme of those newsletters. So let's just take that. Let's assume that somebody has come in, they've downloaded one of our assets, they're part of our nurture, they've opted in to get the newsletter. A prospect, maybe uh, in that newsletter, we talk about overarching campaigns, which are relevant to all customers, their points of view, thought leadership, things that we feel are important that we're hearing in the market. Um, and they may focus more on the uh, prospect newsletter on things like, well, come and hear about us from a webinar. Come and participate in a meetup. Um, come and you know do some of your own research and we'll point them to blogs and social content. 
Whereas on the install-based side, that's where our customers are already familiar with our solutions and their needs are a little bit different because they're either looking to optimize their investment in 5.9 or potentially become more aware, not with our core offering, but what some of our adjacent offerings are, either that we offer ourselves or that we offer through our partners. And there we do things like lunch and learns, uh, hands-on demo workshops, um, customer references. How is like customer references is a great example. For a prospect, the customer reference or customer webinar that we take is much more about helping the prospect to build an internal business case and taking stats and facts, for example, so that they can go back to their management team and say, okay, well, let's just say I'm moving from on-premise to the cloud. Here's five examples of customers that have done this before with 5.9, and here's some of the savings that they got. You take that same customer reference and use it in an install base, the tone and content will be different. So we might say, actually, we want to use that in the context of the customer a little bit further down the path when they've rolled out the solution, they've got a different set of ROI, and instead of talking about just the end stats and facts about the ROI, we want to talk about the how. How did they do it? How did they onboard a new part of the 5.9 portfolio? How did they leverage a partner solution? So I think you've also got to think about who your audience is as well um, and sort of tweaking that content so that it's more applicable to either a prospect or an existing customer who you're trying to retain and grow. In 2021, Zoom intended to acquire 5.9 in one of the company's largest acquisitions and at the time, the second biggest tech deal of the year. Zoom was to put up $14.7 billion for the acquisition, but unfortunately, by September, it fell through. So how did that affect the business? And what about the customers? Back um, in 2021, 5.9 was part of a you know, high-profile acquisition by Zoom in the media a lot because at the time it was, I think, one of maybe the top two largest, you know, in in, in the year. So something close to a $15 billion valuation for 5.9. And then that ended up not going through. Parties kind of pulled out. We, we don't get to give all the specifics here. But then how does that impact? And there's sort of that high-profile event, you know, either existing customers or new prospects hear about this. It's in the news. And then it doesn't go through. How has that affected your marketing? That's kind of an unusual event that maybe not a lot of CMOs have. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the thing was, was there's a very special thing about 5.9. We have an incredibly close relationship with our customers. So we've got probably about 2,500 customers and we have a very close relationship with them. So we had been very transparent with them all along the way. And so we've just been talking with our customers ongoing, letting them know what's happening, letting them know uh, the benefit of what potentially uh, a joint solution could be. But then also as well, I think you have to think about the different buyers because sometimes the buyers for Contact Centre and UC, uh, Unified Communications and Collaboration, are the same and sometimes they're not as well. So for some, there was a portion of our customers where it was like, yeah, this is great because now I just have to deal with one company. And another set of customers who were like, that's great. I don't deal with UC, so I'll just keep working with you as I've worked with you before. Um, so I think the key is open and transparent communication with customers and just being very honest with them about why the different events transpired as they are. And the worst thing that could have happened is if we would have shut down communications to our customers and not being transparent about 
how these different companies can work together and be successful, but how we can also be successful standalone companies as well. So, so you had that ramped up and you were still actively communicating. You weren't assuming that, you know, these kind of deals go through as much as there's like a quiet period. There's other things you have to do. You were kind of continuing to message back and forth. And then when it sort of, what did you do when news came out that like, hey, maybe this might not go through or stuff like that. Did you do anything proactively at that point, specifically want a message or how did you? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you have to be careful because you've got to make sure that you follow all of the various regulatory, um, you know, things that you've got to be subject to whenever it comes to mergers and acquisitions. But we had, you know, with all the information that we could share when we could share it, we shared that with our top customers and stayed close to them. Uh, And we made sure that immediately, you know, after uh, the notification went out to the street, we spoke to our shareholders. We spoke to our top customers. We prepared our sales teams with FAQs about what to say and how to answer questions. And we invited our customers to ask us any question that they potentially uh, wanted to. And many of our senior leaders, myself, uh, our president, our CEO, got on the phone uh, one-on-one with customers and just had open and transparent conversations with them. Where you are now as a marketer, one of the things that, that you said, which was interesting, was you came up on more of a product track. And I was looking mm-hmm. at your, your background here and, and how that kind of jump came over. But you've, you've obviously been with some very big company, companies, like MicroFocus, Hewitt Packard, um, ones that are very large. But how did you make the jump over from when, if I go far enough back in your LinkedIn, I see IT consultants. I see business consultant. I see senior project manager. We're going, we're going a ways back. So how, yeah. how did that sort of transition uh, happen? And, and would you have expected that you'd be a CMO? Uh, no, I wouldn't have expected that I would have been a CMO, to be honest with you. Uh, I was always a, a product person. I mean, when I was a consultant, I was implementing SAP, right? So I was always a, a product person. Um, but I think it's, it's like a natural... It really is a natural evolution because when I was a consultant, it was about working with customers on what was their business problem and how could technology solve it. And then from that, I was implementing software. And then, you know, when you're implementing software, you very quickly understand the limitations of what certain pieces of software can and can't do. So you automatically start to get into the realm of what product management is all about, which is understanding what the market needs, understanding what technology is doing and bringing those two together. Um, And then when you're in product management, you you know, you find yourself not just thinking about, well, what's the roadmap for this product, but how am I going to make money with this product? What should the pricing be? How am I going to make sure that the feature that I'm building has a compelling value proposition and people are actually going to want to buy it? So you start to get into some of the marketing disciplines like messaging and positioning. And you start to think about, well, especially if you've got a, um, a PLG model, a product-led growth model, where you're looking at, well, how do I get more trials for my product? And how do I then convert those trials? You start to get into the marketing discipline of e-commerce and digital commerce and website transactions. And so for me, it was always just a, a bit of a natural evolution. Each area that I was in from being a consultant to a product manager to then being in product marketing and, and so forth, I got little glimpses into the other worlds. And then I just decided to to go and learn more about them because I think that's where you create, if you can understand all the other parts of the go-to-market ecosystem, 
I think it just helps you again to have better conversations because you see where somebody else is coming from. And in particular with marketing, I think people think they know what marketing is. They think they know how marketing works and they don't realize until they're in it how complex B2B marketing can be from the sense of the technology stack that you often manage. There is a ton of integrations. There is more technology at the hands of marketers than there ever has been. From the data side to it, to how do you manage your KPIs and manage volume, value, and velocity, um, through to the creative side to it. You know, events, events is a great example. You know, you turn up at an event as a customer or a partner and you see all the shiny outside stuff. You don't realize all the little stuff going on behind the scenes, what it has take, taken to coordinate the content, create consistent content, the production teams that are working on it, the scheduling, the rehearsals. And so for me, it's always been just interesting to be able to sort of delve into other worlds and really understand from the inside of those worlds how they work. So what would your advice be to someone who's, let's say, five to 10 years from being a CMO? Mm-hmm. They want to be prepared. They want an upward career track. They want to be considered for those positions. Well, if you're, if you're going to go back and be five to 10 years before where you are now, what advice would you give yourself or what advice would you give that other person? Yeah, I would definitely say go do something outside of marketing, right? I love marketing. Marketing is is a passion of mine. It's a beautiful blend of uh, science and creativity, but go do something else outside of marketing because I think a lot of times, again, I'll go back to people assume certain things about marketing and sometimes marketing have to work a little bit harder for their credibility, for their seat at the table. And sometimes by having taken a role outside of marketing, it can help you boost your credibility and it can help you boost your understanding of what, why are we building these campaigns? Why are we doing these events? How are they really going to impact revenue and pipeline and bottom line of the business? Well, and I think that's good advice actually for anyone in a type of industry or a type of company that tends to be led by certain divisions that might be different than marketing, right? So you have mm-hmm. many, there can be companies that are marketing-led companies, right? 100%. Marketing is front and center. It's driving the whole company. For those, it's not often a credibility question. You're driving the company. Everyone knows what you do is important, right? It's you know If you're a CMO at Coca-Cola, people understand yes. that you're, what you're doing. This is hugely important, right? You don't have to convince them. But particularly in, as we start getting into more, either it's B2B spaces, but especially technology-driven B2B spaces. And yes. there could be co- companies that are, you know, engineering-driven companies. Texas Instruments was a company like that, right? Driven by engineers, how they think. It could be product-driven companies. It could be other things. I mean, it could be just like, you know, enterprise sales teams that are dominant in the company. Yeah. So, so if you're outside of that, if you're in marketing, being aware of that and having some of those other skills, what you're saying to talk the language, to be like a part of that, that can be hugely important, especially if you're at a company where your skill is not the dominant skill on the company. 
Yeah, and it helps create relationships, right? To say, oh yeah, I, I get where you're coming from because I, I've been there, right? I've been in that that scenario. I've had to do that. Um, and so I think you're exactly right. In B2C, it's a different case um, because I think in, in B2C, it's probably more important to go and diversify yourself within the marketing function and decide, you know, is there a, do you want to be a, specialist in branding do you want to be a specialist in demand gen do you want to be a specialist in segmentation or are you looking to be a sort of um a, have a broad ability to cover all of those areas so in b2c i think you diversify within the marketing function um, and in b2b potentially look for diversification outside of the marketing function sure absolutely so you've also been um an advocate for Women in technology, technology historically a little bit more male dominated. You're also you're, 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 a, you're a member of the C suite as a woman. I, I'd love to know your perspective on that. Do you feel like there is a, a glass ceiling in the industry that would be different than other industries, or do you not? Do you feel that it's you know uh, women and men are on equivalent footing, or do you see things every day? And then what do you do to try to um, make things more equitable um, as, as, as a woman in a leadership position? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. And honestly, it's one that I struggle with because I hate to think that there is any type of glass ceiling that I, but there is, and there are, there are biases that people have, um, especially, you know, with females, uh, and especially think, in technology. Think, yeah. I was, I was asking, do you think it is, especially in technology, do you think? I think especially in technology, um, you know, people expect you if you're in the C-suite to maybe be in marketing or be in like HR or legal uh, potentially. And just, you know, even if people don't come at it from a place of malice, sometimes there are just inherent biases that people have because that's, you've got to remember sometimes, you know, maybe they grew up in a different environment where there weren't as many females in leadership positions. Um, so, or, or, or just, it, it's, I think for, for anyone that has worked for a while um, and, and to take it away from the gender discussion, it's like pattern recognition. People try to recognize yeah. patterns they see. If you've been around yeah. a whole bunch of folks that look a certain way or talk a certain way or you know dress a certain way, you tend to recognize patterns. Oh, this is what a person is supposed to be like. And, and maybe to your point, there's no malice at all, but you're just biased by the patterns you tend to recognize because that's all you've been around. That's all you've seen. Well, yeah, and it's also like uh, executives, right? Just just forget about anything else, but, but executives. People, I think, have a certain perception of what an executive should be and how an executive should behave. And, you know, then you're like, well, why? You know, because again, that's what they've always, that's what they've seen. That's what they've been exposed to. They haven't seen a different approach. And so I do think, I do think biases still exist. I do think that it, um, it's harder. There are lots of opportunities out there. I think there's a turn of tremendous awareness that is created for diversity in tech. And I think that's really positive and I'm very happy to see that. But I think it's something that we just always have to keep top of mind. And even myself, I'll be the first to admit, you know, when it comes to things like hiring, um, I have to make a conscious effort to remind myself, hey, Jennifer, we're hiring for these roles. Have we really thought about diversity? You know, whether it's looking at diversity of, of, of sex, race, uh, religion, 
um, all different types of diversity, are we making a concerted effort? And I think you constantly have to remind yourself and you have to keep yourself in check to just keep it top of mind. And is that, like, to, be, is that to be equitable or is that to also, does it relate to performance? relate to how you actually you want the best team you can you can have that's that accomplish the most results i think it's i think it's both i mean I, I want the best team that i can possibly have i'm a firm believer that diversity of thought uh, diversity of background leads to better creativity and better um ideas coming together uh, but i think as well you know you fall into habits right You've got, a, you've got a rec that's open and you need to get the rec closed and, you know, you want to get someone in that role as soon as possible. So you're like, oh, you're great, like, okay, okay. Person, yeah, yeah, excellent. This okay. person ticks all the boxes and, and they've got qualifications and you have to remind yourself, whoa, hang on. Am I just, have I, have I just been given a pool of candidates that were the easiest to get to from the most likely sources or have I really tried to get different people's opinions and that's why for example like in my marketing team i'm super excited that in the past um in the past couple of months we've hired people that have come in from sales into marketing and we've hired people that have come in from things like uh, technical account managers and they're coming into marketing because that shows diversity of thought right um so i think it's it's yeah sometimes we just get caught up in the the daily grind and you have to remind yourself take a step back and be purposeful about who you're recruiting and why if you need help with a specific marketing challenge we would love to speak with you email us at topcmo at topagency.com or visit our topagency.com website. Talk to you soon. As a marketer, as CMOs, we like to be confident folk. We like to, to focus on our successes, but what is one mistake you've made, either it's in your current role um, or your current journey, and how has you learned from that and become a better marketer as a result? You know, one mistake that I, I, I always feel guilty about is forgetting about the nuances of marketing in different geographies. And that could be anything from language to the type of medium that you use to the maturity of the market to accept certain messages. So great example of this is in the States, in the US, I would argue that the concept around putting an ad in a newspaper is not really something that's top of mind for most marketers. Whereas, you know, I go back to the UK, the first thing I do on a Sunday is I read the Sunday newspapers. When I'm on the London Tube and I'm commuting during the week to work, everybody is reading the physical newspaper. And sometimes you forget, especially when you live in the US and when you work in the US, even if you work for a multinational company, that not every market accepts marketing and advertising the way the US does. Absolutely, you go to the Middle East, and you're doing all kinds of things on billboards all over. Yeah. Well, like billboards might be the best mechanism you have, an incredibly powerful lever. So great to think about. And it's one of the reasons why I think you got a little bit more challenging than the pandemic, but you got to get out a little bit. You got to get around. You got to see things from other perspectives. And to your point about diversity of thought, um, surround yourself with people who have diverse thoughts, but also incorporate it into yourself. 
be able to exactly yeah and if you can have a global team i mean uh, you know people are moving around the world all the time so if you can you know if you can hire global teams if you're in europe and maybe there are some americans who live in europe and you want to have them on your team or if you're in the us and there's people you know you can have i'm lucky i have a european team and they keep me honest about things um but yeah i i think just having having that different perspective is is so critically important and that the differences in culture is something that as a marketer, um, you know, I've made the mistake of, of falling to the sort of getting caught in the trap of thinking that it's one size fits all. And uh, it's definitely not the case. And the more marketing you do and the more marketing you learn, you realize there's always more to learn. Yes, so. exactly. I, I want to end on a lightning round and get mm-hmm. your thoughts on, on a few topics that very common for you know, B2B tech companies uh, to be involved in. I want to get your opinion on that. So first one, data studies and white papers. Overrated, underrated, and how do you approach that, right? I'm talking about the, like you did the, like the state of, you know, customer communications, the state of call centers, 2023 report. Mm. Um, Overrated, underrated, and how do you, or, or underrated, and how do you approach it? I think underrated. Uh, initially my gut said overrated because there are so many of them out there and they all say the same thing, but I think they are underrated when people don't use them properly and people aren't thoughtful about the questions that they are asked. So as an example, we do these studies as well at five, nine, but the person who leads this, uh, my team, Scott Coleman, he is really good about going out and looking at all the surveys that already exists and basically saying, Well, if all of this already exists and we've got data on it, even if it's not ours, let's find the white space. And let's ask about the white space. And the other thing is we actually, what we've done, we're about to do a business report. We went out to our customer advisory board and we we sent like a preview of the questions to the customer advisory board and said, hey, here's the 20 questions we want to ask. Share it with your team. Is this useful? Tell us the ones that are not. Tell us the ones that are. So I think it's really critical to go to a sampling of it's, first of all, critical to look at what's already out there and don't get hung up if it doesn't have your logo on it or your name on it. Right. If the data is already out there, then customers can already get it. What's the point in them getting a version of it that's pink versus a version of it that's blue? Right. Okay. There isn't much value in that. That's not value to the customer just because it's got your logo on it. It might be valuable to your sales team, but it's not valuable to the customer. So first of all, look at what data already exists. Secondly, and find the white space. Secondly, go and um, ask some of your existing customers or your target audience if they would find this data useful. And would they would they pay for that report? Right. Even if it's a nominal amount. And if they'll be like, mm, probably not, the likelihood is they probably don't find value in it then. So then why are you asking the question and why are you finding the data? You're doing it to inflate your own ego. Sure, sure. And, and ultimately, I think thinking about you first versus me first, meaning are we serving you? We're providing some value to you. And then our messages get along right along with it. Or is it me first? It's kind of a self-serving exercise. We're not adding any real value. Exactly, value, exactly. Great thing. If you're not having value and just serving yourself and checking another box that you're doing it, then, then maybe not. 
Yeah, right. I have Donald Miller's uh, Donald Mirror's a story brand in my head. Make the customer the hero. The customer is always the hero. Absolutely. Which brings us to the next lightning round question, which is branding in the B2B tech space. Overrated or underrated and how do you approach it? Just the brand, your voice, your persona. So many B2B companies I hear now, like, like we want to market like a lifestyle brand. How do we do that? Okay, branding, overrated or underrated? Yeah, I think it can be slightly overrated. Um, it's like, own who you are. Like, you're not a lifestyle company. You're a technology provider. You're providing a service. Own it. That's valuable. Not everybody needs to be a lifestyle company. I actually, funny, a B2C brand that I was talking about the other day with an agency uh, that I really appreciate is Nike or Nike, how I would say it. Because if you look at some of their photography and their imagery and how they approach their website, what appeals to me about them is they own their athleticism. They own themselves as a sports brand. They haven't tried to over pivot to the lifestyle brand like some other of their competitors have. They do it. They have elements of it, but they really own being a sports brand. Final lightning round question, which is, let's say you do that um, differentiated uh, data study. You're trying to spread it around the world. You're going to implement a global PR program. So you're going mm -hmm. for earned media around the world. So global PR, overrated or underrated? How do you approach it? Underrated, but you've got to do it right. Great example of this is last year, we did a campaign for Reimagine CX. We did a piece of earned media. We put a person, one of, one of our team actually, uh, on the side of a cliff in Wales and showed that you could run a contact center from anywhere even the side of a cliff in Wales. Um, and we basically, for a period of about two weeks, we were trending on Reuters as their second highest top topic. Not because we put a person on the side of a cliff, not because Reuters cared about contact center, but because we tapped into something that was really key, which was remote working, agent burnout, moving to the cloud and creating great customer experiences. So, which sounds like what we would call a great strategic context around the doing that so much, it's not just the product or what it is, but it's actually all the stuff you put around it, which are tapping to all these cultural themes and things that are happening yep. post pandemic and all these sorts of things to make it more relevant, even yep. when you're doing a stunt. Press releases are not going to get you noticed. Right. They're not good. Like everyone does press releases. Everyone's always, let's do a press release. I'm like, I don't think, I don't know why people seem to think that press releases are magic and that all of a sudden you create a press release and it creates all of this noise and attention. It's like, no, there's a lot of work that goes into making something newsworthy. And newsworthy is that you have to tap into what is happening in the culture at the moment, at the point in time, and you have to be ready to jump on it and to be relevant, and then amplify it yourself. Well said, uh, Janetha Murphy, there you go. Basically, press releases, overrated, thoughtful, strategic, newsworthy PR, underrated. So for CMO Janetha Murphy, great marketing is all about focus. Focus on your ideal customer. Focus on segmentation. Focus on nurturing campaigns, with dynamic content. Focus on making information flow, 
between sales and marketing. The result? A proven approach to marketing that is simple enough to scale. For Top CMO, I'm Ben Kaplan.